From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Election Day is a month away. Ballots hit the mail in a week. Midterms historically always have a lower turnout than presidential races. Here in Colorado, we have higher turnout for both midterm and presidential than the average state because we do mail-in balloting. The issues this election speak to an ongoing divide. Republicans want to talk exclusively about inflation, supply chains, difficulty doing business, all the rest to go along with crime and fentanyl. Democrats are talking about two issues almost nonstop, one being abortion, the Dobbs decision, and the second being some broadly defined preservation of democracy. Navigating those messages are Colorado's many unaffiliated voters who are something of a wild card. Unaffiliated does not mean moderate. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There's more than junk arriving in your mailbox these days. That blue voter guide has been mailed out and ballots for the midterm start dropping in a week. So we're going to check in on the campaigns and the issues with our regular analysts, political scientist Sarah Hagedorn of the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and columnist Eric Sonderman, who's a former public policy consultant. Thank you both for being with us. Glad to be here, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Have the fundamental issues of this election changed at all? Has has something perhaps fallen by the wayside or alternatively been added to the conversation, at least in Colorado in these last few weeks. Professor, you want to start? Sure. You know, I don't think that the issues have fundamentally changed. I think what we're seeing is some slight numbers changes in how many people are caring about issues. I think the economy, inflation is remaining right at the top of people's concerns. I think we're also going to add price of fuel to that in the coming days and weeks with OPEC cutting production by 2 million barrels a day. So I think that's going to start hitting probably right when ballots hit our mailboxes. Abortion is still going to be an issue. And obviously it's more of an issue on the Democratic side because that's what they want to talk about. Eric, what do you think? Well, I wish I could give you a point-counterpoint here with uh, with Sarah, but I think those issues are all the top-of-the-mind top issues. I do think the only thing I would add is the two parties have almost distinctly different issue sets. It's not that we're talking about the same issues and the two parties have a different take on them. They're talking about wholly different issues. Give me an example. Republicans want to talk exclusively about inflation, supply chains, difficulty doing business, all the rest to go along with crime and fentanyl. Democrats are talking about two issues almost nonstop, one being abortion, the Dobbs decision, and the second being some broadly defined preservation of democracy, January 6th, the threat of Donald Trump and his acolytes, etc. The two parties, the, the sets of issues they're discussing and the ads they're running, 
uh, it, it's Mars and Venus. Interesting. Professor, you seem to hint at the idea of engagement earlier. Uh, midterms don't tend to draw the interest uh, that presidential elections do, but would you expound on your thinking there? Sure, absolutely. Midterms historically always have a lower turnout than presidential races. Here in Colorado, we have higher turnout for both midterm and presidential than the average um, state because we do mail-in balloting. But yeah, as we talked about, I think two months ago, people weren't quite engaged yet. It was still the summer. The campaigns hadn't kicked into high gear. And now that they have, I think voters are finally paying attention to what's going on, paying attention to the candidates, taking a look at who's running and looking at the issues. The general perception was that the tighter of the two marquee statewide races was the U.S. Senate contest, uh, pitting incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett against Republican Joe O'Day. Uh, do you still see that as the case, Eric? Well, of the two, if you're going to make it relative between the governor's race and the Senate race, yes, the Senate race is closer and certainly has the potential to be closer if there is to be a surprise on election night. I'm not anticipating or predicting that surprise, but if it, there is to be a surprise on election night, it is far more likely to be in the Senate race than in the governor's race where Governor Polis looks increasingly secure. That said, the polls on the Senate race are somewhat all over the map. You have Republicans producing polls showing it very tight and very competitive. You have other polls that show it being a eight or nine point race in Bennett's favor. My gut, and it's purely gut, uh, I can't cite numbers to back it up, is that it's somewhere in between there. It's not a nine point race in Bennett's favor, but it is not a coin flip either. Uh, and a lot of national Republicans regard the Colorado race as their sleeper possibility. Uh, there are higher profile races, certainly in Georgia and Arizona, uh, Ohio, Pennsylvania. But if there's to be a sleeper, they think it could be in Colorado. Uh, but if that's going to be the case, it, it still is a sleeper. It doesn't look like it is right there at the margin right now. I'm curious, Professor, you know, Eric mentioned polling there. Uh, that they're kind of all over the map in that Senate race. What do you look for in a good poll? And is it perhaps something we could apply ourselves when we see polls? So I look for good questions and a better sample. What we deal with in Colorado is a good sample is exceptionally difficult. With 45% of our voters being unaffiliated, it's incredibly difficult to get the right numbers because you may call an unaffiliated for their thoughts and you might not be getting an equal number of more Republican-leaning unaffiliated and Democrat-leaning unaffiliated. Just looking at this new poll that showed Senator Bennett up 10 points over O'Day, I think they oversampled Democrats and undersampled unaffiliated. So I think we are going to get this 10 points when those two numbers are a little off. I agree with Eric that this is probably only a six or seven point race right now, if you take into account um, some of these over and under samplings. So if I were to apply that to a poll I read, say, in the newspaper or hear about on the radio, uh, what would I look for if I went a little deeper into the poll? That's a great question. So what I did when I saw these Fox 31, The Hill, the Emerson poll that came out 
And the races just looked a little bit more open than I think they are with Bennett up 10 and Governor Polis up 17. So I every news article will link back to the actual frequency tables and the actual data. So I just pulled it up and took a look. And you should see their samples should have the same number of Democrat, Republican, and unaffiliated respondents as there are in the population, while also understanding that those unaffiliateds are very difficult to model because we don't know which unaffiliateds we're getting. What uh-huh. if we got all <laughs> conservative-leaning unaffiliateds or all liberal-leaning unaffiliateds? Then our poll could be off 20 points. Fascinating. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's 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 possible that, uh, well, it's not possible. It's also true that some unaffiliateds are left or right-leaning they just don't uh, affiliate with a particular Absolutely. party. I always tell my students, unaffiliated does not mean moderate. What do we know about split ticket voting in Colorado and how that could play into the results? Like someone, you know, votes for a Democrat at the top of the ticket and Republican perhaps in a down ballot race, say, attorney general or secretary of state. Well, Colorado used to be known in years gone by as one of the king of ticket-splitting states. The example I often use, and I'm dating myself, and this goes back several decades, is an election in the late 1970s where Governor Dick Lamb, my mentor, won re-election with 60% of the vote or very close thereto at the very same time that a Republican Bill Armstrong was winning a U.S. Senate race at the 60% level. Mm. So you had massive numbers of voters splitting their ticket between a Democrat governor and a Republican U.S. senator. As we have sorted as a country, as we have gone to our polls, whether it's nationally- P-O-L-E-S. P-O-L-E-S. As opposed to P-O-L-L-S, yeah. Yes, excuse me. Thank you, Ryan. As we have gone to our respective uh, extremes, shall we say, uh, ticket splitting as a phenomenon is vastly, vastly reduced hmm. from what it was decades ago. That is the case across the country. It is certainly the case in Colorado. Many, many more voters these days vote a straight or almost straight Republican ballot, a straight or almost straight Democratic ballot. I had a friend recently email me who is voting for a Republican candidate in one of those down-ballot races. And he said this is the first Republican he has ever voted for, which gives you some sense of the partisan loyalty and the pulls of that partisan loyalty these days. I know there's been some discussion, will there be some kind of disparity between perhaps the vote for Phil Weiser as the incumbent attorney general versus the vote for, let's say, a Dave Young or a Jenna Griswold as the incumbent treasurer or secretary of state. Theoretically, that's possible. In terms of recent experience, those down-ballot races tend to be proxies for whichever party is up that year or mm. whichever party is down that year. And the difference between those various candidates is usually far less than one point. Sarah Hagedorn, uh, you teach political science in Colorado Springs. I- I'm curious what you are hearing from your students as we come close to ballots dropping. I mean, both in terms of whether they're interested in participating and their views on the issues. That's a great question. And right now I have 50 intro to American government students. So they're going to come at this a little differently 
than my senior students who are taking my Congress class. My seniors are completely engaged. They know how to vote. They're registered to vote. I had one student who was in the room at the Governor Polis Regent Ganell debate last week. Um, and then I have my intro students that ask, coming back to the split ticket voting thing, can I vote for people of the opposite party? Just not knowing that you can even do that. So I think these younger students are more pessimistic, a little more apathetic, and see politics, unfortunately, as a bit of a really bad reality show and are more likely to criticize elected officials than realize that elected officials are not our leaders. They work for us, right? They represent us. So I see them being concerned with the Dobbs decision. I see them being very concerned with economic stuff. I have students who are scraping together money to put gas in their cars to get to work. I have here in Colorado Springs, UCCS, we have a large number of veteran students and also students who are active duty. We are concerned with the situation in Ukraine. They're concerned with North Korea. And they're watching these international things pretty closely. Hmm. So that's a broad broad answer to this, but my students are diverse because I have seniors and also freshmen. You talked about an almost generational difference with your younger students. Is that a function of their youth? Something that you think that will change in their views or or that they'll continue to carry with them into adulthood, this sense of politics? I think they're going to evolve. These younger students haven't been in the classroom. They haven't been out with people. They haven't met real politicians. So they're looking at politicians and politics with a pessimism. Once we get back to being able to meet people in person, I think that'll kind of wane a little bit. Uh, Eric Sonderman, there was something you said a bit earlier that I wanted to uh, probe further before we go. Uh, You seem to indicate that the momentum in the governor's race was on incumbent Democrat Jared Polis's side. Why do you say that? First off, Ryan, Jared Polis is the incumbent. Secondly, he is a Democrat in a Democratic-leaning state. You put those two factors together, and he is going to be a favorite, if not a prohibitive favorite in any case. You add to that the money that he is able to throw at this race, the nonstop ads, both ads critical of Ganahl and ads warm and fuzzy about Jared Polis, well done ads in my estimation. Uh, And you put that together with the fact that, at least in my estimation, Heidi Ganahl, who is a talented business person and a woman with a compelling personal story, has never quite found her stride as a candidate. She'll have a good day in some cases, even this debate that Sarah referenced earlier, where she was the aggressor. She certainly took the fight in that debate to Polis, and then she follows it up with two or three bad days by going completely off script and and getting caught in issues that are sidebar issues at best. So she really just hasn't established herself as a candidate or in many voters' minds, perhaps as a viable governor. I'll say that uh, Mr. Paul is now the largest donor in Colorado to any campaign to date, uh, 11.1 million of his own dollars to his own campaign. That's a game changer, I guess. It is a game changer. And what's even more of a game changer is if the polls were not 17 point polls, but three point polls, 
that $11 million could easily be $21 or $31 million. The check that he can write is an unlimited check, as we saw in 2018 when he was first elected. Sarah Hagedorn, I wonder if you, uh, in watching the ads or seeing campaigns do outreach, if you have seen anything surprising or novel this cycle? You know, I haven't. And there's almost something novel in that. After two years of being locked down, we're almost back to normal. I am seeing this over 2020, a return to more retail politics, which is pretty common in Colorado. This is candidates going directly to the people and making their case in person. We're still seeing the standard air war, and we're going to see more of this air war TV ads, um, online ads, that type of thing. It is refreshing to see candidates back out literally on the trail, though. So that's that's a return just to normalcy. Y'all mentioned gas prices. Uh, who do you think that favors or disfavors if it's a decision that's being made by oil exporting countries. Whose message does that benefit, do you think, Eric? I think it makes the campaign, the election, more of a standard issue election, which tends to favor the party out of power. In this case, the Republican Party. Republicans would be very pleased if when voters are filling out their ballots, issues such as gas prices and other issues of inflation and general economics are top of mind. Economic issues usually benefit the out party, which right now is the Republicans. It's called retrospective voting. Voters looking behind them to seeing how the last few months, years have gone and either punishing or rewarding the party that is responsible. So right now, if you're paying $5 a gallon for gas, by the time you fill out your ballot, you're going to punish the in party. I guess I, I want to be intellectually honest here and say any politician left, right or center who says I can help with the price of gas is kind of oversimplifying a global commodity. No, Eric? Oversimplification in politics, Ryan? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I am completely shocked here. Of course you are right that uh, the intellectual rigor of these arguments is often lost. And the three of us, I would like to think, Sarah, you, Ryan, and myself could go grab a cup of coffee and have this uh, discussion in deeper terms. But when discussion is limited to sound bites, to 30-second ads, to online banner ads, etc. And perhaps to frustration and a feeling of, I just need a change. I need something different in Bingo. case it I have just, power. It's just a, an intuitive gut reaction of frustration, as you mentioned. Those are not intellectual discussions. Those are not intellectual processes. It is much more instinct. Uh, and voters are very susceptible to instinct. Professor, anything you'd add? Candidates who say they can fix this are being disingenuous, and I, th and I think voters sometimes listen to that. I had one student this week was just had to voice his frustration that Congress adjourned, um, went into recess without passing the fiscal year 2023 appropriation bills. And he said, how can they do that? And I said, well, do the, does the average American know that? No. I think in politics, especially with 30 days left or however many days we have left, if it takes you longer than 15 seconds to explain something, you've lost. Wow. Sobering. Uh, thank you both for being with us. Always fun. Thank you, Ryan. 
Okay, I'll try to say this in 15 seconds. Political science professor Sarah Hagedorn of the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and columnist Eric Sonderman. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC. Colorado voters have lots of decisions to make this November. Who will head the state as governor? Who will represent us in the U.S. House and Senate? And the ballot also has questions on everything from psychedelics to school lunches. Follow CPR's in-depth election coverage from our public affairs team, stories and conversations from around the state and from Washington, D.C. Listen every day to CPR News, and for even more coverage, come to CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's take a stroll with an entrepreneur who is just getting her footing when the pandemic hit. Leontine, what do you say we go for a walk? Let's do it. It's a lovely day. A lovely day, especially in the shade. Yes, it's so sunny. Leontine Ashmore is the founder of Lizbeth Joe, a shoe brand based in Boulder that bills itself as the most fashionable minimalist shoes. Tell me about the boots you're wearing. These are not just your shoes, they're your shoes. Yes, these are called barefoot shoes. They're zero drop. Zero uh, drop, I don't know yeah, what that means. That means it's, it doesn't have a heel at oh, the back. Okay. So it's all on one level. So it feels like you're walking barefoot. And it also has a flexible thin sole that allows you to feel the ground because we have 200,000 nerves in our feet. And those nerves send sensor information to our brain. So this is a really good biomechanic feedback. Ah, you're literally in touch with the sidewalk at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you developed these shoes in part because of your own health issues, right? Yes, that's correct. I have two kids, and during my pregnancies, I developed diastasis recti. Diastasis recti? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. It is the separation of the abs. Uh, so when I was pregnant, my, I guess from my stomach was just expanding, obviously growing the baby, but that also impacted my abs. With that condition, you get a really weak core. Mm. And so I had terrible back pain uh, from when I woke up until I got to bed. It was just constant. And how did it occur to you to think about what was on your feet? Oh, so I started to do some targeted exercise programs. You'd exercise for 20 minutes a day. Uh -huh. And they advised the trainers that you need to try barefoot shoes because when you're walking throughout the day, that's what's more important than just the 20 minutes a day. And that's how Lizbeth Joe was born. Yes. Did you think that you'd ever be in the shoe business? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, so what happened was that when I was doing this program, it was attached to uh, Facebook groups. And a lot of women had also the same problem I had, which was I wanted to wear barefoot shoes, but I couldn't find any cute barefoot shoes or professional looking barefoot shoes to wear to work. Oh, I'm so glad you said this. I have one pair of barefoot running shoes. They're the kind that are almost like gloves for your feet. The five finger? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, they're fine in a gym, I guess, but I wouldn't be caught dead in them at a party, you know? No, no, or even in a, in a meeting, right? Or at a job interview. So the boots you're wearing, they, they look kind of like Chelsea boots. That's what I was gonna say, it's like your classic Chelsea boot. So it's kind of like, of course everybody wants a pair of Chelsea boots in their wardrobe, but just make it barefoot. Uh-huh. Make it barefoot. Now, suffice it to say, the pandemic hit, mm -hmm. and it was some pretty terrible timing for you as an entrepreneur, <laughs> it was. wasn't it? It was. It was terrible timing. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Uh, well, I started my business by doing a crowdfunding, 
So I crowdfunded in the beginning of 2019. Okay. So in about April time, I had finished. And then the shoes didn't arrive until December 2019. <laughs> and then in the first two months of 2020, I hadn't actually launched my website. I was too busy fulfilling pre-orders. So March 2020 hit. And that's when I actually opened my online site to sell. <laughs> oh, right when the virus hit Colorado, basically. Mm-hmm. Oh, did you think you were cursed? Ah, uh, no. <laughs> no, that's not how you react to things. N- not anymore. <laughs> no. Who's Lizbeth Joe? It's not your name. No, it's not. It's from my mom's name. So her name was Elizabeth Joe, and I just shortened it to Lizbeth. <laughs> And so it's an ode to her. Yes, it is. She's passed now, but she's, you know, she's still part of my life. She's an inspiration to me. Um, She was a single mother of five kids. And, you know, whenever she saw something that you liked, she could just create it with no pattern. Um, And she was a very helpful person. So Lisbeth Jo also gives to Kiva as part of her legacy in a way. And Kiva helps, well, entrepreneurs in developing places, correct? Yes, it does. Yeah. So uh, do you see this as a version of helping people like yourself? It is. Initially, uh, it was a much, much bigger dream that I had to scale down. So I'm originally from Zimbabwe. And I wanted to actually have a factory in Zimbabwe to create jobs there. But then the consultant I was working with at the time said, Leontine, manufacturing doesn't work that way anymore. Everything is, you know, automated. You won't actually create that many jobs. Fascinating. (laughs) Yes. And then I was like, anyway, I don't have the capital, but I wanted to start Lisbeth Joe with still the goal of helping. Yes. So I thought of Kiva. And this was what, a value that your mother instilled in you? I guess so, yes. She's always been a giver, even when we sometimes had to go without, she would give the money to someone else when she felt needed it more than us. Isn't it fascinating when sometimes the people with the least give the most? Yes. I'm always moved by that. Mm-hmm. So your goal was to create a low profile shoe mm-hmm. that looked cute. I think those were your words. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Was that a challenge? It was a challenge, especially talking to manufacturers because it's, it's an alien concept. Like, are you sure? Who's going to want that shoe? And I got prototypes with heels on them because... (laughs) They truly did not understand the idea. No. Huh. Because you have to make the mold from scratch. And then you're just going to someone who's never done it before. And it's just like, what what do you mean a barefoot shoe? (laughs) So how many pair of shoes have you sold to this date? To this date, so my first run was in 2019, and I sold about 300 pairs through crowdfunding, uh-huh. and I only purchased 650 at that time, and then I sold the rest the next year, and then I had this whole big COVID year where I couldn't get a manufacturer or get the stock, and then so in 2021 I got my second production run, mm. which also is- delayed. Also delayed. Uh-huh. I got it in August and it was 378 pairs instead of a thousand pairs. <laughs> they <laughs> so just was, couldn't make that many. They had so many rejects. Oh. Yeah. What do you think your advice would be to someone who's getting started? 
what, mm-hmm. what, what's a pitfall that you could help them avoid? I would say, um, so I'm an introvert as well. Hmm. And so I didn't go out to people and establish myself as an expert in the field before I started the shoe brand. So I think be the go-to person, speak to people, be out there in social media and just talk about your passion creates the tribe before you actually create the business. Oh, interesting. You've done that to some extent online, of course, but there needed to be even more networking, I hear you say. Exactly, yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure to stroll with you. How are your feet feeling? Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) How are yours feeling, Ryan? I'm not wearing your shoes, although I did wear my favorite pair of shoes just to impress you. But I'm feeling quite comfortable myself. Thanks for chatting with me. Well, thanks for having me. This was such a pleasure. Leontine Ashmore is the founder of the Boulder-based shoe company, Lizbeth Joe. We strolled and spoke in August. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.